Welcome to episode four of the Healthcare Hub podcast. My name is Abhinav, and I run this show with my co-host Tyler. On today's episode, we will be focusing on the use and advancement of AI technology in healthcare. We will first be talking about GE Healthcare and the use of their AI platform called Edison Marketplace. We will then be speaking to our guest speaker, Shrest Gandhi from Deep Genomics, a company using machine learning and AI in order to discover new drugs. We'll end off the episode with Tyler speaking on AFRED Health, a platform using AI for mental health treatment. Thank you and welcome to episode four. GE Healthcare recently announced that it will soon allow customers to test and buy software powered by artificial intelligence through their online store, Edison Marketplace. Edison Marketplace is GE Healthcare's AI software platform that hosts different applications that can be created by third-party developers. And there's a lot of power to allowing third-party developers to create different software that can then go on to function with GE Healthcare's hardware products. For example, NVIDIA Corporation is stepping up their efforts in launching their Medical Open Network for AI, or Monet. And Monet will be based on a framework that was created by Facebook Research Group that uses deep learning models that attempts to emulate the way that the brain functions in humans. And this initially led to many breakthroughs in areas such as language translation, voice recognition, and image classification. Now, NVIDIA hopes to apply this technology in the realm of medical imaging, and it'll be interesting to see how such third-party developers could potentially put their programs onto Edison Marketplace to then function with GE Healthcare's products, such as different CT scanners or MRI. I think this is a really interesting story because it shows that GE Healthcare might recognize that other software developers can create different AI technologies that can work really well with their hardware products compared to anything they could possibly create. So the Edison marketplace is really mutually beneficial. I also think that this is a great model to bring AI technologies and medical imaging into the healthcare system efficiently and safely. As we know, before any AI technology will be taken up by any hospital, these hospitals will have to conduct a lot of research, make sure sure all the safety and security is ensured, and also test for efficacy. So by creating the Edison Marketplace, different hospitals can then go on to drag and drop or plug and play these different technologies into their GE healthcare products and conduct the different testing required. And if it turns out that one program doesn't work as well as it's supposed to, that AI software can simply be removed and the next one can be implemented. And it's also interesting because this Edison marketplace will be based on a subscription model, which will also allow hospitals to have more control over their pricing and reduce costs in the future. Overall, really interesting stuff and definitely something I want to follow up with in the future. Shres Gandhi started off studying electrical engineering at the Indian Institute of Technology in Kanpur before completing a master's of science degree in machine learning and genomics at the University of Toronto. Since then, he's worked his way up to machine learning lead and senior research analyst at Deep Genomics, a Toronto-based company that uses genomics and artificial intelligence technology to power drug discovery. Welcome to the show, Shres. Hi, Tyler. Nice to meet you. I'm glad to be on the show. Oh, very nice to have you as well. We're here with uh, you and my partner, Abhinav. How are you doing today, Abhinav? Doing great. Really excited to uh, have a really, really uh, future-looking and advanced uh, organization speaking with us today. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I wanted to start off with a little bit in your background. We know you, mm-hmm. uh, as Tyler just mentioned, we, you uh, completed your undergraduate studies in electrical engineering, and we were interested mm-hmm. in knowing more about your transition from electrical engineering into more of a genetics uh, in a biological setting and applying those skills there and how that transition happened. All right. Uh, so while I was doing my uh, degree in electrical engineering, I was sort of uh, interested in optimization in general. So I uh, worked on convex optimization. And 
this was during the time where deep learning was like already very popular in Canada, but in India where I was, it, it was not as common for people to be, uh, to people just didn't know about uh, the impact of machine learning. Uh, so when I moved to the University of Toronto, uh, the U, U of T, as you know, is like a, is a hub for machine learning. And uh, as I entered here, I, I chatted with my colleagues here and I sort of was introduced to the field of machine learning. And I, I took a course uh, with Professor Brendan Fry in my second year of, in the second year of my master's. And uh, yeah, I was, I was really interested in the idea of machine learning and how it's being used. And um, yeah, so that, that was basically my entry into the field. After I moved, into, moved to the University of Toronto, I, I realized that uh, machine learning is something I'm very interested in and something I'd, I'd like to pursue as a career. And it was only after taking that course that I realized that I would want to make a permanent switch to this. So yeah, earlier I was in a, in a, I was working on a different problem on, in my, during my master's. Then I switched to machine learning essentially after I took Brendan's course. Very interesting. That's a, yeah, definitely a cool way to jump into this career path. Heading back to your educational start here. So you obviously mm -hmm. kicked off your career in electrical engineering, then made a jump uh, to machine learning and genomics. What led you to that jump? Uh, right. So um, I think fundamentally, I saw a lot of similarities uh, in electrical engineering and machine learning, especially if you focus on the math. Uh, it was, um, but I think one uh, shortcoming I felt uh, I, I experienced working on uh, as an electrical engineering researcher and during my undergrad as well, I, I felt like there was a significant gap in what we study and how long it takes for that to see that in action. Uh, whereas in machine learning, I felt like even if you study the field for a few years, like you study it in your undergrad and then do a master's degree, you can work on some really cool problems and you can see the impact of your work very soon. Um, and th that was, I think, the core idea that excited me about machine learning of uh, being able to use my ideas and whatever innovations that I come up with, I can see the impact of those in a very short time frame, and I can see sort of real impact. And working at Deep Genomics especially, uh, I think that, that that has been the sort of major draw for me to, to be able to work on problems that are really impactful to society in general. Yeah, no, that's definitely a big academic change, but a lot of overlap between those two, those two areas in engineering. So beyond the academic aspect of going from your undergrad to your master's, there was the cultural aspect of coming from India to Canada. Is there a specific reason you came to Canada to do your education? Was it just the specialty in machine learning at University of Toronto, or was there something about Canada that attracted you? Uh, yeah, so obviously when I when I was deciding to move from India, I was not just thinking about just the two years uh, of my of my degree. I was also thinking about what it would be like to live here and like settle down potentially. And I I I, I think Canada is one of the best places in the world to to live. And uh, yeah, I, I of course I didn't have that clear of an understanding when I was still in India and I was like 18 years old. But uh, I, st I still had a picture of what living in Canada looks like. And uh, yeah, that is something I, I wanted to, to see myself doing as well. So yeah, I, I definitely look forward to, to living in Canada. I'd like the sort of multicultural atmosphere that we have here. And uh, yeah, I think I, f I feel sort of at home here, which is, I, I guess, hard to describe. But like, uh, yeah, that, that is something I, I like most about living here. That's great, great, That's to, great hear. to hear. Yeah. Uh, so interested in, uh, you mentioned, you know, you came here for your studies and we were interested in knowing in academia in general, the differences you might see uh, in how academia is conducted in India compared to Canada. What are those differences and uh, how are you finding that transition coming in? Oh, that's a great question. I think, so uh, I was, I only did my undergrad in India, so I can't speak from a research, uh, like I don't have any research experience in India, but uh, especially during my undergrad, I think the focus was, uh, like we didn't have a lot of projects. There was very little application to what we're doing. It was mostly 
a very classical approach to studying. It was, uh, you know, understanding the key concepts, solving assignments, reading the textbooks, uh, that sort of thing. But over here, when I did cor my courses here and also did research here, uh, one I felt was more collaborative. There was more focus on, like, if you have a seminar course, you uh, create a group with your colleagues and then you present an idea together. So it's more collaborative and it's also more active that you, that there's more of an emphasis on project work, on applying ideas, uh, on, on doing sort of a presentation uh, than it is on sort of just uh, learning textbooks. Yeah, I don't want to unfairly criticize all of the research work in India, but that, that was just my experience. Yes, we've definitely learned about that in, in class here from a lot of our colleagues that uh, overseas it's a lot more theory based and here it's a lot more practically based. So it's interesting mm -hmm. that you experience that as well. Speaking of another transition, so going from research in that academic setting at the University of Toronto to conducting research in a, at a private company doing private research, what was the difference uh, for, the, for you uh, between those two settings? What was the big main change there? Yeah. I think one uh, change which I noticed almost immediately was like when you're doing research, everyone is working on their own problem. And your goal there is to, to mature as a researcher and to advance your own research career. And like your collaboration and overlap with other people is only on the extent of sharing core ideas that you have about research. But when I joined the company, I felt like everyone in the company had the same mission. And they were all working towards the same thing. And all of the ideas were sort of very oriented towards a very targeted goal. And I think having that collaborative atmosphere of everyone uh, bringing in their own experience and ideas and way of looking at things to the same problem, to the same goal and advancing the company, uh, I think that was something very unique and something I really enjoyed of, of like, yeah, even if I'm working on a very narrow problem, I have two other colleagues who are also working on the same thing who I can bounce back, I bounce ideas back and forth. Then everything that I do, I, I feel that is part of a connected mission with, within the company. Yeah, that narrowing down is definitely one of the things that you would expect moving from an academic setting to that workplace setting where in an academic setting, you're obviously learning, uh, taking a bunch of courses in different areas and uh, getting a wide breadth of information. While obviously in that workplace setting, you're very much narrowing down on a specific task or a specific set of projects. Did you feel like you had to evolve your skill set at all when you kind mm -hmm. of narrowed down what your daily life was going to be with regards to, as opposed to uh, a large amount of machine learning projects, just narrowing in on that drug discovery with genomics in that one setting? Yeah, I mean, so in a sense, I still had to broaden my experience of what are the problems that I can think about that can map to this very narrow problem domain. So like it's narrowing in the sense of application, but you still have to keep a broad outlook in terms of what are the tools you can use to solve this problem. Uh, so yeah, I think it, that required a change, of, change in my mindset a little bit that all of your thoughts are sort of targeted towards this narrow domain. And you have to, I think one key change uh, is also that you try to notice similarities between existing fields such that, so for example, when I worked uh, on my first project as an intern, I tried to apply the idea of uh, neural attention to RNA splicing. And it's uh, like, it's, it's not something very non-intuitive, but it's, it's just the idea that like the same way visual attention works for images, you can apply those same ideas to genomics as well. And it's just that you, you try to notice similarities within with other problem domains to your problem, and you try to adapt as many other approaches as possible to your problem. And I think, yeah, uh, taking a sort of distant view uh, uh, is, is something I, I've evolved to, to have. 
Yeah, I'd love to take some time now to dive a little bit more on exactly what you do at uh, Deep Genomics. I know for people who might not necessarily have a machine learning or engineering background, it might be a little bit harder to understand, but uh, we'd love to know maybe uh, an example of a specific project you worked on uh, so we can gauge some of the things happening at the organization. Sure. So uh, I think, right. So at Deep Genomics, our key focus in using machine learning is to accelerate the process of drug discovery. And what I mean by that is, if you, if you think about the possible space of targets, possible diseases that you can go after, it's enormous. And uh, uh, even though uh, there are databases of known mutations and their associated diseases, people don't know which mechanisms what are the mechanisms by which these mutations affect, uh, affect people? And uh, one key problem that we try to solve is try to map these mechanisms to genetic variants. And then by understanding that, we can come up with interventions. Uh, so we build what we call fundamental molecular phenotype models, which is models that predict activities of intermediate states inside the cell. For example, if you have uh, a very basic level mechanism that goes on in the cell, which is like a protein binding to an RNA, right? So it's not, uh, uh, you're not trying to predict like diseases from your genome directly. You're narrowing the scope of your problem to, to a very low level. So you look at, at sequences, your uh, sequences of DNA, and you look at these proteins and how they bind to them. So we build many models like these of mechanisms that happen inside the cell, such as protein binding, transcription, translation, RNA splicing, uh, microRNA binding, and so on. And by composing all of these mechanisms together, by building very accurate models for these individual components, we can look at how the cell states change when you have a genetic mutation. And then, uh, when we combine this knowledge we, by making this inference, we can know where to target our interventions. So we use this modality of drug called a, a antisense oligonucleotide, which is like a short sequence of modified RNA. So you can imagine it as a string of 20 characters, right? So it's 20 characters, which can be ACGRT. And we try to find using machine learning, which, uh, uh, which of these antisense oligonucleotides, which is essentially a digital drug, uh, like if you store it in a computer, it's just a string, string of 20 characters, which of these will have the desired effect of reversing the mechanism, re reversing the impact that the, a genetic mutation has on these mechanisms? Uh, yeah, so like our, our workbench looks, looks like building these sort of deep learning models of all of these individual mechanisms, uh, scoring mutations using uh, our predictors, and, uh, and then sort of narrowing down on where to target our antisense oligonucleotides to counteract the effect of the mutation. So yeah, that's like at a high level, that's, that's, that's our research problem. Awesome. So with regards to those research problems, you obviously came in as a junior research scientist after graduating and uh, you slowly evolved. We can see from your LinkedIn profile, you went up to research scientists and machine learning lead, and now you are machine learning lead and senior research analyst. How has your role evolved from those early stages to now? Yeah, so when I started the company, I was sort of focusing on one, one problem and uh, essentially trying to improve our RNA splicing model. Uh, and I, I, I focused on that for about a year. We made a lot of improvements to the predictor. And uh, since then, like I wanted to transition more into a leadership role and I started supervising interns and uh, also sort of new hires that we had. And uh, yeah, and essentially I, I, I realized that in order to have a greater impact in the company, I, uh, I wanted to also help other people make the same contributions that I did. And that's sort of what I'm most interested in these days, uh, helping other people 
understand our problems and also making contributions so that like everyone can improve our models, understand, uh, improve our understanding of, uh, of our research problems and make more contributions. Uh, yeah, so that's that's what I started doing as a uh, as as a machine learning lead. Perfect. So at that high level where you are now in, in a bit of more of a leadership decision, I don't know how much insight you would have into where the company goes with regards to picking different things to go into the pipeline or attacking different areas of research. Uh, is that up to more so the research team or the business development team or or who? has the pull in, in those sorts of strategic decisions. <laughs> right. So I think as a company, we're very data minded. So a lot of these decisions are built uh, from uh, analytics that we generate on data that we have. And those pipelines are developed by the machine learning team. For example, if we uh, so our machine learning systems give people an idea of the likelihood of success for each path that we take, right? And based on that, we have experts in different fields who have domain knowledge. So people who have expertise in statistical genetics, uh, molecular genetics, and people who work in the lab who can bring their own expertise and ideas to, 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 help, get, to help us get a sort of more full picture of what paths to take, which targets to prioritize, and so on. But yeah, so like the, I think the, the key engine of all of that is the, is the machine le learning systems that we make, which uh, help us get some, it gives us a compass in this sort of unexplored territory, right? So you could, there's so many directions that you can go in uh, without having any idea of like, what is the likelihood of success for this target? Which, uh, which experiment should we do first? What are the questions we need to answer? It's very hard to do. And uh, the acceleration of all of these processes is enabled using machine learning. Okay, so it's very exploratory in that sense. Mm -hmm. nice. That's really interesting. Uh, I was looking over your current pipeline uh, based on your website and I see that some of the main um, drugs the group is focusing on are related to metabolic diseases and neurodegenerative or neurodevelopment diseases. And I was just curious to know, is uh, are these kind of areas of focus based on the capabilities of uh, the AI or the technology in the workbench that's developed, or is that more of a uh, skill set based on the research group itself? Right. So, I mean, I think we've prioritized which areas to to work uh, first on, where there's sort of least uncertainty in the in the wet lab space. So. Uh, with oligonucleotides, for example, we, you have to select a delivery mechanism for like how the compound is actually delivered to your cells. And only for a subset of tissues uh, is that delivery problem solved. Uh, and uh, yeah, so the challenges in what diseases we can go after, which tissues we can target, are not sort of bottlenecks of the AI systems itself. It's, uh, it's the state of the field, let's say, of like the modality of the drug that we use. Do clients at all have a say or, or partners have a say in, in what areas you're going after? Or is it just kind of you guys make the findings and then partners come to you based on what info you have? It's more of the latter. So we do have some, some partnerships. I believe so we've announced uh, a, a, a few of them recently, one with Biomarin. And we've had a collaboration with Wave uh, Therapeutics previously as well. So uh, yeah, so we have our own pipeline and we have our own uh, candidates that we that we take forward. And in addition to, to that, we have sort of business development deals, which are sort of isolated in their context uh, within within the deal itself. So yeah, I, I wouldn't say that like these deals sort of steer the general direction of the company. It's more that we have our platform and our tools and our partners uh, discuss with us on like what the scope of, uh, of the collaboration would be. And I would, I would give a disclaimer that like I'm not involved in any of these business partnerships. I'm only speaking about what I've seen, what I've seen in the company. No, that's really interesting. Uh, 
just I think in general, AI is becoming is uh, penetrating more into the field of pharmaceuticals in general. And uh, just looking at some of the other companies, Roche recently invested uh, in a uh, artificial intelligence center, as well as more uh, Moderna, Moderna leveraging uh, Amazon's AWS cloud platform in their drug de- development processes. So I was curious as these larger players in pharma are now looking more into artificial intelligence, what uh, niche or what uh, a strategic advantage might uh, deep genomic, genomics be looking into in the future? Yeah, I mean, so I guess the advantage that deep genomics has is much of our technology uh, that we use, we were uh, that came out of the research group in Professor Frey's lab at U of T. And we were sort of the first people to work on that problem of applying deep learning to like the subsets of problems in genomics that we were talking about. So we sort of have like a significant amount of head start in, in that field. And like, I think it's a great thing that other, other people are also interested in doing machine learning and, and genomics. I think it's good for, good for the world in general. Uh, uh, but like for as far as deep genomics is concerned, I think in in the in the problems that we work on, I think we are the clear leaders, and uh, I I don't think that situation is going to change in the future as well. So, so would you say that your main advantage is that first mover advantage, where you kind of established yourself as a reputable company in the market, or is there some kind of uh, lean aspect to your company that the other companies aren't able to? Uh, copy you in that sense? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a combination of both of them, right? So like, like if you look at the size of our company, it's fairly small if you normalize it to the impact that we've had. And uh, it's like, yeah, I mean, we've, we've, we've really, we've quickly evolved on like what problems we work on as the needs of the company have changed. So like as we, when we started out, we were focusing on developing like very accurate predictors or different mechanisms. We didn't really have a clear idea of like how that would map onto therapeutics. Then we looked into developing uh, techniques for oligonucleotides, as I mentioned. And uh, uh, right now, like earlier, we focused on mechanisms called RNA splicing, and then we moved on to more complex mechanisms like expression increase, uh, increasing the amount of a protein. And from looking at like, a very looking at diseases which are caused by a very small change at like one very precise location to diseases where the actual cause is sort of more diffused across either a larger region or multiple genes and disorders which are generally called genetically complex disorders. Uh, So yeah, I mean, I think we've adapted our technology and focus as the needs of the company have, have evolved very quickly, which is, I think, rare to see in a sort of larger company. Yeah, it's definitely impressive that the company competes as one of the leaders in the industry. Like even when we're looking up just at an industry level who the leaders are, we're seeing companies like Microsoft, IBM, NVIDIA being big com- competitors in the industry, but Deep Genomics is listed right up there with them. So it's really cool that you guys are able to compete despite being a lot smaller. Mm-hmm, that's very cool, I agree. <laughs> I had another little question. It's more technical, but uh, I was just reading an article on um, uh, just how, in general, the AI might provide potential candidates after however the model might be created, right? And Mm -hmm. one uh, issue was the rationale issue. It seemed like Mm -hmm. uh, candidates might be provided, but the rationale behind why that AI predicted that candidate uh, might not be given and uh, that might be make it challenging to convince uh, maybe clinicians or anyone else who might not understand the uh, machine learning behind it uh, to take on this drug. So I was just curious and how uh, might you be evolving either your workbench platform to uh, create more rationale uh, into it? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And uh, like establishing stakeholder trust is something that is crucial in applying machine learning to drug development. And I think that's something that we've always been very concerned about and thought as like one of the main concerns or like main deliverables for our models. And I think because the way we sort of model our approaches, we we look at 
known causal mechanisms so like if i if i if i have a drug i can map out its effect such that all of those predictions can be verified individually with an experiment so if i say that this compound is going to change the inclusion level of this portion of rna and we predict that by increasing the the inclusion level of this like exon this portion of rna uh we can have the desired effect such that you you have more functional protein being produced all of those intermediate predictions that the that the model makes can be verified in isolation with an experiment right so you don't have to like the the compounds are not you put this thing in a human and then you don't have this disease anymore uh you you always build rationale and like the rationales that we try to think about uh we always think about okay what 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 things can you experimentally verify what are the metrics that the experts in this field the people who do drug development what do they care about and how can we make predictions about we how can we shape our predictions such that it's understandable or it's interpretable in that domain and yeah and then we try to map it that way so it's not so we don't limit our algorithmic techniques to be interpretable by itself so like if you even if you give someone the visualizations of like the neurons of your network or something like that that is completely meaningless to them uh what we try to focus on instead is uh we'll give you a, a functional prediction of like this is how the drug will have an impact and this is we made this prediction and we verified this with an experiment and we know this is how it works that seems really cool i see it seems like there's a, a lot of uh, cross functional work that happens between the uh, teams working on the software side and uh, the wet lab side to confirm those experiments so I'm curious about that just uh, maybe on a organizational structure level how uh, how do you communicate or how do you make the communication as efficient as possible between these two uh, parts the wet lab and then the development of the models themselves yeah so one of the core values of our company is is called multilingualism so like we encourage people to uh speak to like be very confident in their own native language which is like for me it would be machine learning and also be willing to learn the language of their coworkers so it would be to speak the same language as someone who has a background in genetics molecular biology for example so yeah we we put a lot of emphasis on that and uh like most of the decisions about okay which problems do we go after next what are the things for which we should develop models those decisions are always made in conjunction with people in the lab or like people who will be doing experiments who will be using this these models right so like even from the first step all of the all of like multiple people from with different backgrounds are involved in every step of the process and like yeah so of course it's 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 complicated to communicate research with two people who don't have the same background as you but i think that's that's something we consider very important and then we make a conscious effort to to make that possible taking a little bit of a pivot to what you brought up earlier about these partnerships so you brought up that recently deep genomics entered into a partnership with biomar and uh to identify different oligonucleotide drug candidates in different rare disease in indications and I also saw uh you've got a new chief business officer in Amanda K so she's powering a lot of these new partnerships as a researcher when you start up a new partnership like this what is the first what what are your first steps there right so i mean for me personally i'm sort of responsible for the machine learning technology that we have to to so if if in those partnerships we uh, there is like a very clear overlap in all right we can use these subset of predictors to answer these scientific questions much uh, much faster and we can use our predictors to sort of design these experiments better to optimize their design then i come into the picture in helping those sort of uh, helping those sort of decisions being made it more, more easier um and researchers in general i think in the company are always like so like the people who will be most closely working in any of these partnerships 
will be a combination of uh, experimental researchers and computational researchers. And in, so all of the, like all of the research output of that group will be made by this entire team with sort of people with different backgrounds. Okay, very cool. So it's kind of that same collaborative approach between WebBench and, uh, and the model makers where you're collaborating with people from that company to work on those models uh, that are appropriate for what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Shresh, obviously COVID-19 is rocking the world right now, rocking a lot of small businesses similar to yours. Uh, mm -hmm. Toronto has just headed back into lockdown, so it's rocking us locally. With the impact of COVID-19 on uh, genomic drug development, it, how has that shifted your resources or, or your day-to-day? Is there more funding for certain projects or have your priorities shifted in your, in your research? Are new skill sets required? What's been a shift that's uh, resulted from COVID? Right, so I think for us as researchers, it's, it's mainly adapting to this new mode of working. Uh, I think when we were in, in the office, we would all often just, you know, go to a whiteboard and have a discussion and hash out some ideas. And uh, it's been challenging to maintain that same level of connection with your coworkers uh, when you're sort of working from home. And we've had to onboard some people who've only worked remotely in the company. And it's, yeah, the challenge is to have them integrated into the team and have them uh, like aligned on the same mission. Uh, so that's the challenge uh, in keeping the team structure going, maintaining productivity. Uh, from a business point of view, I don't think we've been uh, impacted significantly. But yeah, I'm not very familiar with that side of the company, so I can't uh, speak with any kind of authority. Yeah, it's interesting because in the career section on your website, it even says uh, you're open to having people work from home in Toronto, in Boston. So it seems like that that decentralization has become a big part of the, the company as a result of this. Is there a specific way that you guys are centralizing your research or the platforms that you're using or the, just the, the, yeah, the research being done so that you can all work on something together in those teams? Yeah. I mean, we try to, uh, yeah. So, I mean, centralizing is, is easy, right? Like, so you have, uh, you have some meetings often and you discuss the ideas. I think what's more challenging is having these sort of informal conversations and uh, uh, things where like ideas emerge without having a lot of structure to them. Uh, for example, we would often have discussions around the water cooler, for example, and many, many uh, good ideas for projects would, would emerge from that. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, that's, hard to replace that's just like a casualty from COVID. And, uh, but yeah, we've, 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 we've tried our best to make sure that uh, everyone stays in touch, at least on our core projects. We have regular check-ins, regular meetings, uh, try, to same, try, try to stay aligned uh, on the mission of the company. Uh, on, on the topic of have we changed the projects that we work on? Uh, I don't think that's happened. Like we haven't substantially changed what are the problems that we work on because of working remotely? We just have to, we've just had to adapt to the challenges that we presented. Yeah, that's interesting because obviously these kind of sort of landscapes change, especially during crazy times like this, like how Pfizer has made those new vac that new vaccine that's mRNA based. So that represents mm -hmm. a shift in the market where there's going to be more acceptance over those mRNA based vaccines. And so, you know, it's hard to tell whether those shifts in the market will come when something gains hmm. acceptance like that as these vaccines are popping out. So have you found that there's any sort of, uh, with this new M mRNA technology that's gained a lot of acceptance in the last little bit, has that changed any long-term outlooks going forward on research or will it just kind of be the, the same strategy for identifying new pipeline items going forward? Uh, I think it's, it's definitely advantageous that people think about science in general. I think it's, it's great uh, that like there's more awareness about like scientific thinking about the output of biotechnology in uh, in particular, and more people are aware about these things. 
I think that's definitely beneficial for our company and like for the field in general. Uh, it's it makes it easier to have discussions with investors, for example, when they're sort of more caught up with what's going on. There's more interest around biotechnology. There's more interest around uh, therapeutics. So yeah, I think that's that's definitely beneficial for us. And uh, it's I think too too early to say how it would impact the future direction of our company. I think we we've set very clear goals on what we want to achieve and very, very focused on achieving those goals in the short term. Uh, but yeah, I mean, at least that's, that's a silver lining uh, to this whole, to this whole thing that, yeah, people are yeah. more aware. No, that's really interesting. I was just looking over uh, one of your uh, developments for one of a can one candidate and in 18 months, you kind of had the start to finish for uh, producing a candidate for Wilson's disease. So this, how fast this, uh, how fast this technology can be used to uh, develop a candidate is really interesting to us. And we, we yeah. on our podcast, we're really interested in personalized medicine in the future. And we're curious to know in the long run, could you see this technology being used uh, for personalized medicines or personal, personalized ge genetic medicines? Yeah, I think I think this is the future. I mean, uh, many people have discussed how the like the cost to develop a new drug in pharmaceutical industry has sort of grown up exponentially, even when the output hasn't increased by a lot. So there needs to be a paradigm shift in in the way in which we think about drug discovery and and like essentially at scale, it is a data science problem. So we uh, doing any sort of large-scale drug discovery or even personalized medicine without incorporating any element of data science and machine learning in the future. I don't think that's very likely. I think this is the future. And um, yeah, and like I was very glad to be part of the project which uh, uh, was involved in the discovery of the, uh, the drug candidate for Wilson's disease that you mentioned. And yeah, it was, it was really exciting to to see our predictors that we, that we developed for, for our new splicing for that to actually come up with uh, the cause of like, what is the actual effect of the mutation for Wilson's disease? How is Wilson's, how, how is that caused? So essentially we found that like skipping an exon in, in, ADB, in the ATP7B gene causes Wilson's disease. And we experimentally verified that because we had like confidence in the predictions of our model, we knew that doing this experiment should get, give us positive results. And like we knew exactly which experiment to do. And we also use machine learning to identify the compounds to, for which compounds to, to select as our antisense oligonucleotide. So we massively reduce the search space of which compounds should be screened by narrowing down that subset using our predictors. And by doing that, we were very quickly able to find an efficacious uh, oligo. And uh, once we had that lead compound, Everything else is just standard procedure, which we all have to do to verify uh, verify the effect of that compound to before we nominate the, that as a before we sort of announce that as a candidate. But the actual discovery phase was very rapid and. Yeah, it's definitely tricky or this seems definitely like the, the future of accelerating that drug development and getting things uh, researched and developed and marketed quicker. So I, I definitely think this industry is one that's ready to boom. I think the last question on my end is just something curious about deep genomics. So obviously it's a company that's very, puts a large emphasis on that uh, artificial intelligence and using data science. Does, on the, does deep genomics use those uh, technologies at all on the business side of things? And if so, is there any... Uh, relationship between people who would be doing artificial intelligence on the scientific research side of things and those that are getting data insights on the business side of things? Um, yeah, so for example, in some of our previous collaborations uh, with other companies, we, we had like a data exchange and uh, there was like overlap with like the scientific part of the company and the part who, who who works on the business development side to actually make sense of all of that data that came in and to inform like, okay, so when, whenever we're like going after 
a business deal, what are the parameters of that deal? Which genes should we focus on? What should we keep to us versus what should we make part of the partnership? All of that prioritization is powered by the analytics provided by a machine learning platform. So in that sense, there is like a very tight knit overlap uh, in, uh, in, in, in the business insights and the machine learning systems. I think it's, it's become so ingrained in the entire company of like, we just have these predictors and that's just how we think that we don't really think about it, like having like formal collaboration. But yeah, I think, uh, yeah. So I guess all of our, all of our decisions, I guess, in every stage of the company are powered by the insights that we have with our predictors and our data science platform. Yeah, it's really interesting how you uh, define some of these problems you're working on as a high level data science problem applied to biology. I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. And in the future, as you know, computer chips get even better, uh, the things that can be done will only uh, improve from there. So it'll be really interesting to follow up with deep genomics in the future. Uh, no doubt about that. And it, it, yeah, that was, um, I don't have any more questions. Uh, Tyler, how about you? I'm good, that was a great interview. Thanks so much for coming on today, Shresh. Thank you, both of you. All right, everybody, welcome to the Healthcare Hub Startup Spotlight. So just like usual, we're going to look at an interesting company here that we think is worth keeping an eye on in the future, a rising star in the field, if you will. So pivoting from genomic AI to an application in mental health, we are going to talk about AFRID Health. So they're a Montreal-based startup founded in 2017, and they're using AI to support the clinical decision-making in mental health care. And just a little background on their last couple, their past year here, they were the sole Canadian team to make it to the semifinals of this year's global IBM Watson AI XPRIZE competition. And that was a huge global competition. It was multiple years long. So the fact that they made it to the semifinals, they were only one of five Canadian teams in the competition in general. So that's pretty good on their part. And they recently received a prestigious grant from Quebec's Minister of Economy and Innovation. So there's definitely some validation to what they're doing here in the direction the company's going, especially when you look at their collaborators. So they mainly work with McGill University, but they also work with the University of Toronto, University of Michigan, Yale, a number of other universities and innovation centers. So there's definitely a lot of research collaboration being poured into this company. The main issue that AFRED Health is trying to address is that there are a large number of treatment options in mental health that are similarly effective at the population level, but not at the patient level. So despite the tools and guidelines available to healthcare providers in that space, it's usually pretty difficult to ensure that you're giving a holistically personalized treatment to each patient. Now, this usually results in a lot of trial and error with different treatments where the patients seem like they're the target of a treatment that's successful at the population level, but you can't really target it to that individual. So that's never ideal. You've got to try a whole bunch of treatments before you finally get something that works. So to combat all of this, Aford Health is building AI models in collaboration with a network of domain uh, experts in psychiatry and data sets from clinical data from thousands of patients to tailor individual treatments to each patient. So they want to take patients, take data from them and using their model, find the exact perfect uh, treatment to that exact patient. In a little more complex terms, if you're familiar with AI, they are using deep learning to perform differential treatment selection. So overall, if the method ever does incorrectly identify a patient, uh, that outcome is going to be fed back into the model and the model is always going to be improving its accuracy that way as well. And yes, yeah, so overall, they're just trying to cut down on the amount of time it takes patients to reach remission. So using their models, you're feeding that information in and finding the most efficient way to, to serve these people and get them, get them the help they need the quickest they can. Now, obviously, it's fair to be a little bit skeptical of feeding a bunch of information into an algorithm and treating it like it's a robot doctor, like treating patients based on, on numbers. But Aford AI actually has an application where patients and, and their healthcare providers, they're able to fill out questionnaires about the patient's mental health state or the quality of their life. And this data is visualized to help support decision-making that can kind of be facilitated by that healthcare provider. Uh, Aford AI's, Aford Health is building a lot of uh, guidelines to, to support their, their model and get things in, provide this information in an ethical way. 
So then when the, a prediction is made by AFRID, uh, the treat and it tells you what treatment works best for them. Obviously, on the app, there's a report that's generated that helps you interpret these results and and get the reasoning behind these results and what why you're taking that treatment. And then you can also continue filling out questionnaires to track the symptoms and treatment effectiveness over time. So you can see, okay, is this working? Is this not working? Do I keep going forward with the algorithm told me this is how I'm changing? Maybe it can generate a new treatment for me. That sort of thing. So it's overall just continuously getting you the treatment that based on thousands of other patients and what's worked for them, finding what would work for that specific patient. Overall, it's just a really interesting tool for psychiatrists and physicians to leverage in the future when making these important decisions. I mean, just look at what their objective is. It's, it's tools like this that could really help relieve the strain on our healthcare system and specifically our mental health care, because we've all heard, especially at universities, how long a wait it can be to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. So this could really open up their capacity, get more people in and out of the door, get more people uh, those positive outcomes you're looking for and achieve them quicker so that you can get more people the help they need uh, at a closer time. At the moment, AFRID Health is primarily focused on depression in their early stages, but they are planning to have their platform address a broad spectrum of mental health conditions because obviously there's a lot of overlap between the characteristics of depression and anxiety and schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, eating disorders, all of those. There's a bunch of overlap in the characteristics of those. So there's going to be overlap in the treatments and what works for people with a, any com combination of those disorders. Uh, so they want to use what's called treatment diagnostic AI model that's taking data from patients of all these disorders to get this model to just be effective for anyone who's looking for mental health treatment there, no matter what, uh, what, what, you've been diagnosed with or what specific disorder you've been identified to have. Obviously these things kind of come on a spectrum and mix together a little bit. So based on whatever you have, this will find the right treatment for you. So it's really encouraging to see that they're moving that direction in the future. So this will be a really interesting story to follow uh, just because like, uh, as we know, during the pandemic, although COVID is obviously taking its toll on a society as a mental health crisis, there is, been a huge mental health toll as well that's been taken from being locked away from your friends and family inside for practically a whole year. So anything that makes our mental health care system any more efficient definitely sounds uh, needed at this time, especially with so much therapy and healthcare interactions in general happening online. Digital tools like this will be integral to keeping patients and healthcare providers connected moving forward and on the same page when they can't see each other in person. So if you want to learn more about AFRID Health, you can check them out at afridhealth.com. That is A-I-F-R-E-D health.com. And that does it for the Startup Spotlight segment today. And that does it for the episode today. So thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Healthcare Hub. Uh, uh, this was a really interesting episode. It was cool to really dig into AI and see a lot of the different companies and career paths in that area. So very interesting episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, signing off for Ab and Ab and I. It's been great having you. We'll talk to you later. If you enjoyed this episode, also be sure to follow us on your favorite podcasting platform. Follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, wherever you are. Come find us. We'll we'll uh, be there and put out all the goods. Let you know when new episodes are dropping. We've got some really cool, interesting uh, interviews lined up for the next couple weeks. Looking forward to it, and we will talk to you soon. <laughs>